0: All right, so we're back for another cutting room floor. Uh, we're in the book of Joshua. We're sort of leaning into this idea of, you know, h- how do we make sense of, quote unquote, conquest? How do we make sense of the stories we encounter in mm-hmm. Joshua, Jericho, uh, and many others? Yeah, for sure. Uh, h- how do we, as contemporary people who wanna practice the way of Jesus, wanna take the scriptures seriously, What categories do we use to sort of do that, right? Because it's not always simple.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think there's a lot we could say here. I think we'll have a couple different episodes on kind of this conquest, you know, topic, if you will. I think for today, one thing that I found helpful was from a scholar, William Webb, who wrote a book, co-authored a book um, called Bloody, Brutal, Barbaric. And Mm. it's highlighting a lot of these violent passages in scripture. In particular, Joshua judges the conquest sort of land or that section of scripture. But he starts the the book with, he has like six main theses that are kind of like anchor points for him as he then goes and kind of fleshes them out more in in the writing. So this
0: is a Christian scholar who wants to take the scriptures seriously. He believes God is good. Yes, And he's trying to figure out how do we then as modern people come to that conclusion when we read these stories. For sure. Yeah. So he
1: starts off with these big theses that he then flushes out more I as know. the book goes on. So I want to just take a little bit of time to go great. through some of these, all these, well, these six. Yeah. And the first one he calls square pegs round holes. And what he's getting at here is if you can imagine a square peg round hole, what he's yep. talking about is not doing essentially this. Taking not being preschoolers. Not, yeah, there you go. Right? <laughs> not like trying <laughs> why to does shut doesn't your, this Why work? doesn't this fit? And so sometimes <laughs> what he's getting at is that frustration of why don't these fit? And what he's talking about is sometimes the traditional answers like, God said it, so, you know, we just got to deal with it, yeah. or God's holy and the Canaanites were evil, we just yeah. need to deal with it, that being some of those answers there, with our contemporary sort of ethical concerns, Yeah. and so just doing our contemporary ethics with kind of these directives from scripture, these traditional answers, yeah. and trying to make them fit, oftentimes leaves people frustrated yeah. with, doesn't how, go well. how do you actually read Joshua, because well, yeah. you still go, that still seems wrong, or doesn't yeah. jive well, or whatever, yeah. And so his sort of little pushback, and this gets fleshed out more, is that we need to understand ancient Near Eastern ethics and culture and also understand, yes, the character of God. And what he wants to do then is not just impose, essentially, our contemporary ethical concerns, as good as they might be, on this ancient text, and especially on the ancient Israelite culture. Or the Canaanite culture. Or the Canaanite culture, for sure, totally. Yeah. And so both of those are, are true. And so this first one then is more or less just sound more or less like a warning. Don't impose contemporary ethics in our modern day on the ancient Near Eastern culture, in particular Israelite yeah. and Canaanite culture. So it's sort of
0: like, hey, before you make all these declarations and have these assumptions, you know, if, if those people were alive, you'd say, talk to a Canaanite. Yeah. Talk to a Hebrew For person. Sure. Yeah. See what they think about these stories. Yeah, yeah. And if they don't have issues with them, then where is the issue? Yeah. For sure. So as a starting place, like if we could travel back in time, yes. and this is what we try and do through study and yes. learning, get a sense of, okay, what are their ethics? How do they perceive reality? How does this story jive in their context? Exactly.
1: Yes. And it's essentially following Jesus, loving your neighbor as yourself. A lot, One way to do that is listen to your neighbor. Totally. So we're trying to listen to our ancient yeah. Near Eastern neighbor here. Which
0: we're often not great at. Exactly. Culturally. Ultrally. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's essentially what, what we're getting at here yeah. with
1: this first one. So square pegs, round holes, number one. Number two and he's not the only one to make this point, but he says the total kill rhetoric is hyperbole. Now, what they're talking about with the total kill rhetoric is that often when you read through, in particular, Deuteronomy and then the chapters in Joshua, is that there's these divine commands or these directives from Moses or Joshua themselves to essentially kill all or drive out all or destroy all, and then it's the Canaanites and maybe some of the other ites, even language of like all men, women, and children. And we read the
0: all and our jaw falls to the ground and we're like, what
1: seems like the title of the book, bloody, brutal, and barbaric, right? So like, what is exactly going on here? And so we might take another, I think, episode to flesh out and kind of show from the scriptures how this applies. But the point here is that when you actually do the work of reading these texts in the narrative flow of the story, and also comparing them to other ancient Near Eastern kind of war history accounts, it's pretty obvious that what's happening here is hyperbolic, language.
0: So define hyperbolic.
1: Yeah. So this is important because what we're what these people are not saying, what we're not saying is that this is not true or this is like unreliable or this is like lying or anything like that. This is similar or akin to in our modern context when like a sports team is like having a game or whatnot. Someone might say like, my team completely destroyed your team or we completely annihilated you know, yeah. the so and so. And what they're saying is, we really won. We really won, exactly. Yeah. We're not literally saying, you know, obviously in a sports game, yeah. we wiped them out in a literal sort yeah. of sense. And in a very similar way, the hyperbolic language is talking about like a complete and total victory over like an opposing. Yeah. So part group. of this
0: is a cultural understanding of how language was used yes. in, at that time and in those settings. For sure. So we read it in our setting and we think, what yeah but in their setting they're like oh this is what that meant
1: this is, yeah it just simply means that they had victory this doesn't necessarily mean that every single human being or every single yeah. like animal or whatever was wiped out Got it. and we know this from very simply you just read through the narrative oftentimes you'll have a story of you know Joshua saying we conquered all these lands and we completely destroyed them yeah and with a few chapters later those same people or that same land yeah. is still occupied and they're still yeah. existing
0: so clearly they did not destroy everything exactly yes yeah.
1: Um and that's you know becomes very obvious and we can flesh that out more maybe in a future so episode. That's, point. that's two.
0: So yeah, round pegs, square holes. Square holes, yeah. Square pegs, round holes. Sorry, I missed Yeah, totally up. Yeah, yeah. Total kill <laughs> rhetoric number Total, two is yeah. hyperbole. hyperbole. That's number two. Yeah, three.
1: Number three, it kind of bleeds in a little bit here, is this concept of accommodation. And what scholars are talking right. about with accommodation is that at some level, and people will disagree at the extent of the accommodation that God yeah. gives in scripture, at some level, it does seem God accommodates to his people. So is that
0: like Moses and divorce?
1: Yes. So that's, a, that's probably the best example okay. in Deuteronomy 24. There's a provision giving, given to Israel in Deuteronomy 24 for divorce. Yeah. And Jesus clearly in Matthew 19 looks back at that command in Deuteronomy 24 and says, quote, because of your hardness of heart, yeah. Moses wrote this. There was an accommodation okay. that took so place So that's what you there. mean by accommodate. Exactly. Yes. Okay. And so the question then becomes, how much of, and people debate the extent of this, how much of the war language or the conquest is God accommodating to an ancient Near Eastern culture that was very tribal and perhaps, you know, preoccupied with a lot of other violence happening at that time. And so the question becomes then, there seems to be some level of accommodation because as you go through the rest of Scripture, it becomes very clear in the revelation of Jesus that God's people are not to act like this in any yep. way, shape, or form. Yep. In fact, you get to Matthew five, and again, you don't want to press this too far and create a dichotomy. We'll get to that in a second, sure. but Jesus' ethic for his people today is love your neighbor, yep. pray for those who persecute well, per- when you. you perse- see it you. in
0: the church. You see it in the life of Jesus. He totally. doesn't fight back. You see it in the life of the early church yes. and how persecuted they are. They never form a militia, exactly. they never form any way of fighting back.
1: Totally. Yeah. 100%. And even kind of zeroing back in on the Old Testament, the directives that God gave to Israel in the Promised Land in the book of Joshua were very specific, not just specific to Israel, but, but specific to that generation and that time okay. as they were going to the Promised Land. So
0: accommodation land. Ha- hits on a few le- levels. Uh, one level it hits on it's accommodating those people. Yes but he's also accommodating them at a very specific moment in their story exactly in a specific place, yes. right? Cause this is related to land yes. that he is giving them. Yes. So it's like, that's a lot of accommodations, but it's very specific. It's very
1: specific because Israel was not, and they actually, Israel was given other commands as far as war go to not actually go just take over whatever land they wanted yeah, to.
0: There were boundaries. There were boundaries yeah, to this. Physical boundaries. physical boundaries. Physical
1: boundaries. And in fact, Israel was to be, a lot of the language in the Psalms that we have, like be still and know that I am God, is often associated in context with Israel laying down their arms and laying down their chariots and their spears and trusting that God would protect them and fight for them. So they yeah. were not, fundamentally to not be yeah. kind of a violent warlike people. They were yeah. to be people that trusted Yahweh for their provision. Yeah. Um, so that's number three, accommodation. Number four uh, is, is this idea of an incremental or redemptive movement ethic. That's a lot of moving it's words. A lot of, Maybe We can break words. that down yes. a little bit. So the idea here, it bleeds into a little bit with accommodation, but this gets at seeing how ethics in scripture are part of an ongoing trajectory within the broader storyline, meaning this, that... Again, the ethics that God gave to Israel at this specific moment in time were part of this broader, larger story of God's redemption. So going back before Joshua, the, the clear call was that Abraham, the family of Abraham, was to be a blessing to the nations. Yeah. And so it's within that storyline that the book of Joshua and the conquest takes place. Yeah. And so the broader storyline is God's redemption in this particular moment. Yes, there had been some ethical commands given to yeah. Israel, but we have to remember this serves the broader redemptive movement the narrative arc of scripture yeah. to the point where all the nations are invited and in to be blessed yeah. by God. So through. there's an
0: overlap then between a con- accommodation and this narrative arc. And maybe you see this in something like slavery. Exactly. Yes. So in the old Testament you have, God is still challenging the culture. Yes. Uh, when it comes to slavery, we get to the new Testament, it becomes like a little clearer. This is the general flow yes. in the prophets and in the new Testament of, yeah, we shouldn't be doing this. exactly.
1: A way to maybe say this in more modern kind of, everyday language is God is meeting his people where they're at, but he's also not just meeting them where they're at, leaving them. them. Exactly. (laughs) He's pushing and pulling them ever so slightly more forward into what his would be his divine ideal. So
0: like maybe even for us personally relate to this, God meets us where we're at, but he does want to change and grow us and sanctify us over time. Exactly. So maybe we think of this as corporate, but, over generations. Over generations, yes. Uh, not necessarily the single lifetime of a human being.
1: Exactly. And I think it's important to, especially in these passages, in this moment of the storyline, to see this is one of the main things God is doing with Israel. He's okay. transforming and shaping them over the course of this trajectory, over the yep. course of time. Um, this then gets into, I think, a really important point. Because if you just have accommodation, if you just do the redemptive movement thing, yeah. if you just kind of push those to their extreme, what ends up happening is you can then have these kind of di- uh, divorced portraits of God between the Old Testament yeah. and the New
0: Testament. Yeah. And so the fifth point that So Webb we just makes, discount the Old Testament there yes. because, oh,
1: that's, that's an old revelation. Exactly, yes. Yeah. And so what's important, though, is when you get to the New Testament and bringing the, the collective of, of Scripture together is that number five is that we want to talk about a converging portrait of God, meaning yeah. that the Old New Testament depictions of God or the
0: portraits of God are one and the same. Yeah. And, so, and you see this even yes. in like the writings of Paul in the New Testament. No yes. one is saying... Man, stop reading those old stories. They have this high value for the Hebrew scriptures, right? Because the New Testament isn't even written yet. For
1: sure. And they're
0: elevating. Oh man, this is the word of God spoken to us. Totally.
1: And so like the author to the Hebrews talks about in many times, God revealed himself in different ways. But in these last days, he revealed himself through his son, Jesus. So Jesus is the full revelation of what God is like. But that revelation is of the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament. And so when Paul then, you know, says things like in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Most people kind of don't realize that Paul is actually quoting that from the book of Isaiah and in the book of Isaiah, it's Yahweh who's in that slot where every knee bows and every tongue confesses and all Paul has done, he's just put Jesus in the Yahweh slot. And so what Paul knows, they're the same. Yeah, they're the same. They go together. I think that's really important that for us, sometimes we want to, and and I understand why people do this. We want to kind of separate those two, or at least in our minds, maybe unintentionally we do that. But for the writers of the New Testament, they're wanting to make this fundamental claim that Jesus is the revelation of who God is and that God is the God of the Old Testament. Yeah. And I think that's really important for us. They're not
0: bifurcating the Old and New Testament, but trying to create, this is a unified story.
1: Yes, for sure. Okay. So that's number five. The last one here is they talk about, or Webb talks about the unfinished justice story. And what he's getting at here is that Let's just, you know, for example, let's just say that perhaps maybe there was just for the argument's sake, something that was unjust about the slaughter of the Canaanites or or whatever, something that was something fundamentally wrong or whatever for the sake argument's sake, the fundamental call in this context is that God's people would trust that on the last day, all rights are wronged, yeah. all injustices, all forms of the, the effects of living in a fallen world, all of the messiness that we might perceive, whether real or not, in the Old Testament as far as these stories go. The call that God's people are to have when you look at the end of the book of Revelation is that, is that God puts all these wrongs to right, and that God is making and redeeming all of whatever happened in the past and what, you know, is to happen in the future and we have to trust that God's justice prevails in the end, somehow, some way.
0: Yeah. So there's this future orientation of saying, as believers, we have this hope that like the story isn't over. Yes,
1: for sure. And I think that's really crucial when we're looking at, not only in our own lives personally, but even again, this gets back to like the redemptive movement of scripture, is that God is on a mission to reconcile and redeem all of creation Yep. And that a p- as a part of that redemption reconciliation is God's justice yep. that we as God's people should long for it yep. in, the, in the sense that he's putting all the wrongs to right.
0: Yeah. And I think there's a few layers to that. We can relate to that personally. Mm-hmm. We can relate to that corporately in the present time. Yeah, yeah. And then we can relate to that corporately and personally over time. over time. And I think sometimes we miss that part yes. of like, no, no, no. Actually, God's going to redeem all of history. Yeah. Not just our history. Totally. Not just the history we're a part of corporately, nationally, globally. Yes. But like going all the way back and all the way forward. All the forward. way
1: forward. Hundred uh, percent.
0: And that's actually a biblical. That's a very biblical and important aspect of what God is doing in history. Yes. In His return. Yeah, for sure. It's really good. Thanks, man. Cool.